Welcome to the Innovation in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month, we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now, here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show today. My guest is Greg Reeder, the head of government industry strategy for Adobe. Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion today. The public satisfaction with the federal government is growing. Just look at the 2016 report by the American Customer Service Index, or ACSI. It says citizens are happier with federal websites and the services they provide more than last year than at any other time since 2012. Survey respondents credited the improvements around things like timeliness and efficiency of processes, as well as the clarity and accessibility of the information received from agencies. The biggest increase came from the quality of federal websites. ACSI says the increased importance of e-government to the delivery of services across the federal government is one reason to explain the citizens' greater satisfaction with the government in 2016. When you talk about the cabinet agencies, the Departments of Interior and State scored the highest on ASCI's index, while the Treasury Department was by far the lowest scoring cabinet agency. But customer service is more than just getting good scores and surveys. It's also about streamlining data and transactions, developing metrics and tracking them, and improving online services by making them mobile friendly and take advantage of new and emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. The technology and data are central to understanding the customer journey. So how do all these things fit together? Well... Greg, that's why you're here. Again, Greg Reeder, the head of government industry strategy at Adobe. Greg, let's just start at the beginning. Experience of, of the of the user, of the citizen, of the customer is so important. What's happening in that area and, and are things improving? I think in your introduction, you talk a lot about different types of metrics, different things that are going on, satisfaction that's increasing. The basic trend of all those things is the experience itself. And so with Adobe, one of our taglines is changing the world through digital experiences. And when we talk about that from a government perspective, we talk about the law of expectations, right? So we have Moore's law, which talks about the computing power that doubles about every two years. But when we talk about experiences and expectations at Adobe, we figure the consumer or the citizen's experience doubles about every year. I mean, think about it. Just today, we want all-day breakfast from McDonald's. We want to be able to do our banking online. We want the airport to know who we are when we check in. We want everything to be seamlessly. Our credit cards to be accepted everywhere we go. It's all about that experience and the expectation that we have. And so each time one of those new technologies changes, citizens' expectations for government changes. So what might be reflected in the scores that you point out is that government is finally understanding that it's about the experience. So if we look back from how things have changed, government and business used to be on par back in the 60s, back in the back office days. They found a better way to take that physical placement of the inbox of having somebody work on something, and now they could put it online. They made the back office more efficient, and they made the front office more efficient so they could talk to customers better. But none of those were about the citizen. They were all about the business or the government. And now what we call the experience wave is what's most important, finding the better way to connect, personalize, and understand who we're talking to and make the government or the business, in this case, transparent to the end result so they have a better experience. This is not a new concept, this idea of making the government better citizens. You can go back to the 90s, or the early 2000s. And I think Mark Foreman, the former federal CIO, before they called it that the fancy title, would say, you know, three clicks to service, citizen services. What's changed now? Is it the technology that's changed or is it the understanding that's changed? I think it's both. I think with the ad of new technology, the speed of the transactions, the ability to use analytics and predictive algorithms to understand people better, raises the bar on what people expect to be able to get. And it raises the, the opportunity for savings in the case of the government. If you can make a more interactive, a more responsive, a more advocate, loyal citizen, then you'll have better 
outcomes. You'll have better data. You'll have better responses. People will pay their taxes online. They will do what they're supposed to do to be good citizens, and the government will have efficiencies as a result. When you talk about raising the bar, one of the things that we see is this really big focus, not just from the administration, and specifically the Obama administration was very focused on this, but Congress got involved too. Do people understand what it means to raise the bar? Because it just can't be hey, we have to do it faster because it's not always faster. It's not always better. You bring up a good point about metrics and about analytics. For a long time, analytics have been about ego versus action. I was a webmaster, government employee years ago when we first started doing websites. And I remember one of our most exciting things was to measure hits, right? That was our measure of popularity, our measure of strength and our measure of power. But it's really just a vanity metric. To be able to understand those analytics now, you have to know what the end goal is. So if I use that same example, when I was running the Marine Corps website and there was a huge spike in traffic and the Marines had left to help people in Haiti, I might assume that we were a leader in breaking news. But if I looked at the analytics, I might have realized, well, there was a policy announcement that day or the promotion list was just released or there was a sale at the exchange, right? You don't know about data and about analytics unless you dig into that. And and still today, there's a lot of emphasis placed on vanity metrics instead of action metrics. I definitely want to pull the string a little bit on the analytics piece. Before we go there, when you look at the customers that Adobe is working with, when you're talking about some of the the federal customers or even state and local level or private sector, what are you seeing around the better customer experience? Give me an example or two if that comes to mind. There's a great example, and I'll go a little bit offshore down to Sydney, Australia. They have the Sydney Opera House. It's a compelling venue, but it's also a government venue. And they realized that they had old technology and they were at a crossroads. They either had to rip and replace what they had or they had to continue to upgrade what they had been working on so long that hadn't been the best. So they made the decision to take the risk and completely innovate with a new system. And they decided to give a hard date of when they were going to have one of their biggest events of the year called Vivid Live to, to go live with their new site. So they launched the new site based on new digital technology that Adobe helped with. Within the first day, they sold $2 million with the tickets at an 87% increase in response rates. They figured that that saved about 37,000 minutes of people waiting to get the response. They also reduced the number of people that stood in line by about 50,000 because now they could buy tickets online instead of queuing at the box office. And so there was a lot of results that that can be measured by analytics, but they're also real government efficiency. They had 1,000 hours saved in email campaigns. And because they used some predictive analytics to do placement and validation of the content, they had a 150% increase in online donations. So the employees were more productive, the Opera House had a better experience, and citizens got a better experience. So everybody won by just improving the way they looked at how they were going to deliver an experience to citizens. This actually tags really well to the analytics discussion a little bit, because when an agency or an organization, in this case the Sydney Opera House, makes that decision, they they have to have some backup to do that. They don't just go in willy-nilly and go, okay, this is what I think will work. So that's where the analytics now can come into play. Exactly. And and when you talk about the analytics, they have to be pulling from somewhere, right? And they know that there's a problem. They know people are dissatisfied. So you have to understand the problem, right, before you get to the answer. Where does the analytics play to help understand the problem? Is it maybe the more poignant question? Well, it really depends on what problem you're trying to solve, obviously. But analytics can go in so many different ways. Most people think about it as web analytics, you know, hits and where, what kind of mobile devices requesting it, what region or state are they coming from, how long do they spend on a page, all of those typical analytics. But it can go even deeper. It can go into the actual object itself, into the image itself. Another good example is the World Bank, who produces reports at one might con- consider a pretty big cost. 
so they can help with policy and debate. And so they finally decided, well, we should probably take a look into, is anybody reading our documents? And there was an interesting article, I think it was in the New York Times, but it pointed out that they did their own study and their analysis once they started tracking the documents that about 30% had never even been opened of their reports. About 13% had had fewer than 250 downloads in their entire lifetime, and about 40% had only been shared a couple hundred times. So when they look at how valid just their content was, it went way beyond the metrics of who's reading it, but is it actually helping anyone? Is there any value there? And so with folks like the Sydney Opera House or the state of Tennessee who wants to make their whole state Amazon.com-like, or Live Well San Diego who wants to improve the lives and health of 3.3 million residents, you're absolutely right. They have to start somewhere, and they have to understand what their baseline is, but then they have to measure against that to make sure they're making progress. And then what the analytics can give them is that path towards digital transformation. I think we've had this conversation time and again with, with so many people in and out of government around this idea of how to move the agency in a way that's not just the lift and ship or rip, rip and replace, but actually change the way you do your business processes. And I think the Sydney Opera House is a perfect example. Instead of having to field all these calls and do this all this advertising, hey, if we just made the online experience better, that also is, is in many ways a very simple but straightforward digital transformation. Is that where this analytics is leading organizations, agencies toward is, is understanding how to, how to transform? Well, it's not only understanding, but it's to be able to deliver that experience at scale. It's a lot to do with having the analytics decide what the best experience is for the user based on predictive analytics, understanding the algorithms behind human behavior. Adobe does that pretty well. We're 100% digital experience focused. And so things like personalization. If you go to a typical government website today, it's mainly a, a group of lists, a drop-down list of links, links on the page. The most used object on a government website is probably the search bar because things aren't always that easy to find. So analytics plays a big role in making sure they understand what type of person is coming, where they're coming from. Did they just search for how do I get a job in the state of Tennessee? Maybe we should present a page that has job postings right up front and change that information dynamically at the last millisecond, like commercial sites do today with Target or Home Depot or Nike. When you go to those sites, they're assuming who your persona is, and they're trying to deliver you the best possible experience. In their case, it's to increase revenue or increase market share for the government's place it's to improve the lives of citizens and improve policy, improve outcomes for government. One of the ways agencies and, and organizations can do that better is through something like artificial intelligence, machine learning. There's definitely an emergence of these technologies in the government. The CIOs I talk to, the when I go to events and, and hear people talk about what's coming up, what are they excited about, it's applying AI to, to do better, right, whether right. it's the mission or services. Talk about where artificial intelligence, machine learning fits into this discussion as well. Well, AI our machine learning, how it's been rebranded of sorts, is really the power that goes behind all of this. And there's been a lot of a drama lately about artificial intelligence, but really the technology behind it hasn't changed in decades. It's really the availability and the size of the data sets that we now have to train the AI. So whether it's Siri or Cortana or Alexa, they're all using big stores of data to train their AI to give a better outcome. So for Adobe's perspective, we have what's called Adobe Sensei, and we use that to collect all of the different transactions that we monitor each and every day. What a lot of people identify Adobe with is creativity, like Photoshop or InDesign or Illustrator. What they may not readily understand is about 80% of every dollar spent in the U.S. goes through Adobe's transactional servers. We represent about 60% of the Fortune 50. So we understand human behavior at scale pretty well. So we can train that data set to deliver better outcomes. Consider the case of if you have a 
government website that has an enormous amount of imagery or content. Generally speaking, someone has to tag all that content in order for it to be found by search, to be valid, to be analyzed, and you have to rely on them to spell it correctly when they tag it, to actually care enough to tag it, um, and not just cut and paste multiple tags so now you have the same data on everything. So with a artificial intelligence like Sensei, it can automatically read the binary information based off the training set of millions of photos that we fed the system, and it can determine if there's water in the picture, if there's people there, if the Washington Monument's there, if it's day or night, if there was a weapon present. So you can use it for everything from law enforcement to delivering better uh, management of archives. And it, it does that at scale to basically in, improve the human performance, not replace it. And I think that's key, right? I'm glad you brought that up. So many people worry about getting replaced by computers. And, and while, you know, maybe if we have this conversation 100 years from now and, you know, neither of us are probably going to be around, maybe that's that's something to worry about. But right now, I mean, I think what, what I'm hearing mostly is, is what you said is, is to help improve the human performance. Give me a sense of, is that happening to improve customer service? Or do you have an example maybe of, of AI, machine learning, where it's being used to say, hey, we used to have this problem, we solved it now because we understand and, and we're able, the AI is able to help people do better? Yeah, I think there's two good examples. One would be the election, and the other one would be the economy. I know those are two small things, but the election, the RNC, they published a report how they used machine learning to understand the size, placement, color, frequency, language, context of all the content that, that they were using for their fundraising campaigns. They allowed the machine learning to go through all of those different variations at scale and determine which one of those was the most viable that could raise the most awareness and raise the most funds. They immediately saw an 87% increase in online donations by allowing the machine learning to determine what the best possible placement, whether is it a green button, a red button, did it say donate now, or did it say I'm concerned, whatever that might be, machine learning allowed them to perform much better as a team because it could make the decisions faster based on real data, not just human assumptions on what people might like. The other one is the Digital Economy Project, when I mentioned the economy. Adobe has, again, I mentioned all those trillions of transactions we have. And now we can predict things like uh, consumer price index or housing index or job index faster than most national governments can. UK, for example, at their Office of uh, National Statistics, they capture about 180,000 products every year and produce a report. Adobe's project captures about 100,000 products in the UK every day. The Consumer Price Index right here in the U.S. bi-monthly surveys about 85,000 different categories. Adobe's Digital Economy Project does about 2.5 million categories every day, and it produces prices on each one of those products, which the Consumer Price Index doesn't. So you can immediately see information on trends to be able to better price your products, better understand the labor market, better understand election outcomes, all which make you better performers as people by using machine learning in the background. Great examples. Uh, I think what we're seeing is this understanding of the technology, the data, all coming together to serve the citizen better. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. You're listening to Innovation in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Serving the public is at the core of what government does. Today, that means delivering better digital experiences to people wherever they are and whenever they need them. Adobe solutions enable government to offer the seamless, personalized, secure interactions that citizens expect. Adobe's tools and advanced analytics deliver adaptive forms and responsive websites that improve agency efficiency and create amazing experiences for the people you serve. Let Adobe help you redefine the government experience. 
Tune in on Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. for the Innovation in Government show sponsored by Carisoft. Learn from industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Innovation in Government examines a wide range of topics and evaluates their payoff. Cybersecurity, big data, mobility, cloud computing, and more. Innovation in Government, Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. Search Innovation in Government. Welcome back. You're listening to Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Greg Reeder, the head of government industry strategy at Adobe. Now, Greg, before break, we got into the citizen experience, the customer service, improving it. We talked a little bit about analytics and the emerging technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it. But everything, I think, comes back to this idea of forms. You got to fill out a form. The government wants you to understand grab your data so they can process whatever needs you have. So the forms is the major pain point in many ways for many citizens. I remember years ago, one of the things they tried to do was do this kind of one-shop stop for everything forms related. It was called Gov Benefits. I don't know if you remember that. You fill out a series of questions. Here's what you're eligible for. And the end goal was for you to be able to fill out the form right then and there and apply. They never got to that angle. The transaction piece was just too difficult. Talk a little bit about forms and how how it's actually changing and things actually are getting a lot better. Forms are sometimes, as we refer to them, the F word in government, right? Uh, Forms, just as you touched on it, the goal of forms is to process information, store that information, and have an outcome. Unfortunately, forms have become the goal themselves. I have to fill out the form, whether it's the DD-214 or the SF-86 or the 1040 or the PPQ-526, which is to regulate the interstate transport of mollusks, right? So there's... I'm going to believe you on that because you you lost me on the DD. (laughs) So there's a form for everything. If you want your son to play sports, fill out a form. If you want to get a license, fill out a form. So the goal is not the filling out the form. The goal is the multiple transactions that you do while you're filling out the form. So uh, some companies have figured this out. Think about TurboTax. If anybody uses that software... They answer a series of questions, and the end goal is to file their taxes. They never see the form. They can print it if they want. The goal was to answer the questions. Same goes for the state of Arizona. If someone needs to apply for child support, they shouldn't be forced to fill out a tiny little form on a mobile device that they can't print and sign and then return via fax in a lot of cases. They should just have to answer the series of questions to determine whether they're eligible, and then they can get the services they need or they can contact someone. What happens is people go in person because they can't fill out the form or they have an issue. And we found that it costs almost $17 for that in-person or that on-phone transaction. If they're allowed to do that transaction online, that cost is about 40 cents. So it's in the government's best interest to reduce costs and increase efficiency by making the forms a series of transactions. And so a lot of agencies are doing that. If we look at gov.uk, which was the model for the U.S. Digital Service, they decided years ago, much like your example, that they're going to tackle forms. Their perspective was they're going to take every form that they have and they're going to convert it to HTML so now it's usable across devices. The point was being able to make it usable, not to make it a better form. And so with Adobe, we have a perspective that good experiences have to be both compelling, personal, useful, and everywhere. That's hard to fit into a form to make it compelling, personal, useful, and everywhere. But other companies realize the benefit of this too. The Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, banking is very heavy with forms. It took about 14 days to fill out the forms to get a normal application done. They decided that they needed a better way. They digitized those forms and digitized the process. They went from weeks to a day. They went from 
hours to minutes for somebody to apply and find out whether they were eligible. And they also increased the number of people that were signing up for accounts by 60%, all by just reimagining the form as a series of transactions. And when you add the mobile piece to it is really key because so many people only have access from a smartphone, maybe a tablet, maybe a laptop. There's not always a printer available. We used to think everyone had a printer. And you know, if you remember the computer companies used to give away printers, hey, buy this 286 and get a free you know, inkjet printer. <laughs> but not everyone has that. Not everyone has a laptop or desktop anymore. And the so, ink was $3,000. And the ink was very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the mobility piece and how that plays a role into the government's push towards better, more easily filled out forms. There's a government website that talks about the mobile moment. Right? You have to be able to deliver a service at the point in time where somebody needs it. And so now it's not whether you need to deliver across devices. You need to determine where the person is in place and time to be able to fill that out. And forms is a perfect example. You brought up that you know they don't have access to a printer. Most often, people that are looking for government services probably can't print. They don't know where there's a fax machine. And by the time they even get to a well-designed, responsive experience, and you mentioned in the opening that governments are getting better at delivering those experiences, it's great right up until the point that they, they get delivered a form. And now it's this tiny little representation on your tiny little screen that you have to zoom in and you can't fill out. So they're fast realizing that we need to find a better way to do that. So I mentioned before about machine learning. Adobe can also take some of that experiential and computational learning that we've done with our data sets. And since we are the experts in forms and developed PDF, we now have millions of forms in a data, uh, in a machine learning environment that helps us understand how to convert paper and flat forms on the fly. On the fly. So we can understand the logic, the structure, the font, the, the paragraphs, the drop-down list, even the back-end logic that the form connects to, and it can do it at scale. And you have other agencies like the U.S. Digital Service that are doing it one form at a time by hand-coding it. It becomes a great experience, but it's not fast enough to keep up. And I think that's the piece here because the expectations, just tagging back to the beginning of our conversations, you mentioned Moore's Law. You mentioned the the changing expectation happens every year. And when you go to Amazon and say, okay, I want to buy this you know, new cooking pot. And then all of a sudden say, well, people who bought that pot also bought these things. And you go, oh, I do like that. And you get you, you expect that. So if you fill out, hey, for veterans benefits, and they say, well, people who filled out this form also were eligible for this, that is your expectation. And, and again, if you're doing one form at a time, so are you finding that agencies are, are understanding that shift and are trying to look at their forms in a different way or look at their transactions in a different way? I think we're at the leading edge of people realizing that. We, we recently did a state-by-state -state study that we asked three questions. How do people get jobs in your state? How do people apply for your business in your state? And how do people pay taxes online? You would think that all those things, in some form or fashion, generate revenue for the state. So they would want to pay attention to how to do that better. What we found is that a large number of states still don't have any or have a poor experience for people just to pay their taxes online. So I think we're at the front edge of that, but changing forms in a better fashion so that they become transactions instead of just that piece of paper you have to fill out is the way forward. We talk a lot about the filling of forms and using AI, but underlying all of this is, is privacy and security, and specifically the security of, of the content itself, right? How, right? how do you understand and ensure that when I fill out that form, when I do that transaction, it is secure? Talk a little bit about the, the security piece. I mean, I think the big word of the day is leaks, right? There's a lot of information that gets out there. I've never had a leak. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, this, is, this is journalism we do. <laughs> so, but, but that brings up the point of how we look at content. 
A lot of CIOs, and especially within government, view content security like a fort. We're going to build thicker walls, higher fences, better sentries. The problem with that model is that once somebody gets outside the fort, and once that data escapes into the wild, there's really nothing you can do about it. So Adobe's model of content security takes a look at three different things. We look at not only the encryption of the document so that we can make sure that it's locked down and the information is scrambled so only those that are authorized can open it, but also attribute-based access control, meaning that if I wanted to share a document with you and you were an, an ally or you were somebody else within my government agency that didn't have that level of access, then I could turn on and turn off paragraphs that you could see. Now we make the content more efficient. And we also make it so that I can update that. So I'm sure you've experienced, we all have, where you go to download a document and it tells you this document is out of date. Or you wait and you get an email from somebody that says, please download the new version and fill that whole thing out. So you should get prompted if you try and open something that's outdated. That's another form of content security, that it knows when content is out of date, where it exists, where it is in space and time. And the other one is continuous data monitoring. So in that example, once something escapes into the wild, it would be nice to know where it went, who shared it, who tried to open it, who tried to print it, who has it, where it went next, so that you have some understanding of where the information went. So we can use the same type of artificial intelligence to understand spikes in behavior. If you print about 15 documents a day, and now you're printing 300, or if you save about 15, and now you've saved 6,000, we probably ought to tell somebody there may be an insider threat. So content security is really a a, three a three-sided triangle that we always have to keep track of. A good example of that was the Army Corps of Engineers. They wanted to protect the supply chain, so they applied digital rights management with Adobe's content security on top of those contracts so that they could protect it. It also protects the suppliers so that they don't find their plans mysteriously showing up in Chinese aircraft designs because they weren't able to share that information. It was encrypted, protected, and trackable. And another good example that's not directly a federal government, but it's the California Bureau of Prisons. People were very much interested in prison records from Charles Manson, celebrities that had been arrested. They were finding it very salacious details that they could then get the document and share it. So they found a way to lock that down with digital rights management. So now the prisoner records are protected, which is ironic because prisoners now have a lot more data protection than a lot of federal employees when it comes to their documents. But it all comes back to content security. The backend attribute exchange, I've been hearing about this for feels like 10 years, and it seems like agencies and, and organizations are finally getting there. When you look forward, what do you see as really the, the area that people are, are saying that's the holy grail in some ways? The federal government has come out with continuous data monitoring policy now, so it's going to be required for high-value assets. They're realizing that they need to have that level of control across agencies, across departments, and across different aspects of government. Much like many things in government, it's, it's slow to catch on. It didn't necessarily come with a budget tail. It will in the future, so I think that will help it gain adoption. But overall, people are starting to adopt it and realize it. Now they can do it more than just the PDF itself. They can wrap content within there that it protects images, protects videos, um, just like you do today. If you want to watch MLB or you want to watch HBO or Netflix, all that is powered by digital rights management most of the time by Adobe's processes in the background to make sure people that are authorized get to see it. Those that don't, can't. All right, excellent conversation today. I really like to appreciate your time. I'd like to thank my guest, Greg Reeder, the head of government industry strategy for Adobe. Greg, thank you so much. Thank you. 
I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search innovation. Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Government show, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion can be found on demand at Federal News Radio, keyword innovation.